I actually got my brain scanned in December. And that's actually how I got my ADHD diagnosis because you could see the blood flow and the lack of it to my prefrontal cortex and putting it in this sort of uh, the view of this isn't because I'm a weak person. This isn't because I have lack of control. I actually saw the brain as an organ. And I saw that this is why there are these challenges that I may have with concentration or focus or the need for highly stimulating work. I saw the lack of the blood flow, right? In the brain scan, this is an organ. And sometimes organs need some support. And it's like, sometimes it doesn't work. Like my heart didn't work, but I didn't take it personally when I had my heart diagnosis because for some reason I looked at it as an organ and it was breaking. And we don't do that with our brains. We take it personally and it feels like almost a failure or a weakness. And I think if you put the brain back into this organ framework and say, hey, if you have these tendencies, it actually might be because of these various things that are going on in your brain and we can actually precisely help you um, treat these issues. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today we're pleased to welcome along Emma Beckley. Emma has spent her career leading, building and scaling up rapid growth businesses in the travel, restaurant and cannabis industries. And she's been highly successful across each of these very different sectors. She's also founder of ABO Performance, which supports small and early stage businesses in the cannabis, psychedelics and technology industries. And is very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the medicinal use of cannabis and psychedelics. Really delighted to give you a chance to listen to Emma today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Hi, Emma. So you clearly had a very interesting uh, career path, developing expertise in one sector before transferring to a different one on a number of occasions. Can you talk us through your journey and some of the themes which have influenced your uh, choices? Yeah, so I have, whenever anyone looks at my background, they notice sort of immediately that I have danced between multiple different industries. Um, I have taken sort of a unique approach to my career, which is, and I think, I think it's, it's unique sort of, but I think I've, I've gone extra hard on it where I have prioritized following my interests. So when I graduated college, um, I graduated in 2009, which as you recall, probably was the height of the financial crisis, <laughs> um, particularly in the United States, we were having the housing market collapse around us. So jobs were, were tough. Um, at that time, I was very passionate about traveling and just experiencing the world. So I started my career in travel, um, grew up in that industry, a really, really fascinating, wonderful time, and then started to get a lot more interested in that rapid growth tech startup. And at that point, I was living in Boston. So um, really wanted to get into that motion of what is it like for fundraising? What is it like working for a very young founder that's brilliant, but doesn't have a lot of experience? Experience. So I pivoted into the technology sector from travel, which is quite a big jump because particularly at that time in travel, it was very antiquated. So there wasn't a lot of like high tech in travel. It's different now. And then while I was in the, the technology industries, I was in Massachusetts and I was watching cannabis come online for adult use. So it was being legalized for recreational use in the state. 
And that's when I, that started to pique my interest. So that's kind of how I have navigated things where I, I go really deep on a specific industry. I grow my career up in that industry fairly fast. And then I start to get really pulled in another direction. So it's been very topic-based. So I really followed the cannabis industry, leveraged my experience into a position at a tech company in cannabis. And then um, as cannabis was evolving, started to get very deep into the mental health space, which has a tie into psychedelics, which is a, a new and evolving nascent industry in the United States and the world, really. But it's really been interest focused. And I've been um, I've been able to leverage this experience that I've had in these different industries and sort of carve out these little pockets within these new industries and add value. Um, so it's been really fun. I'm, I feel very blessed. Well, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that, actually. I'm a particularly since, as you said, you graduated right at that time when yeah. everyone was down, the financial crash was right about, about our ears. I remember that very, very <laughs> clearly and for many people it was a real struggle finding any kind of pathway into a career what was it do you think about you I mean you've described it as being interest based but what was it about you that enabled you to follow those pathways it's a great question um, and I've thought about it a lot because I think that that timing really really set me up for the rest of my career which was I wanted to go into travel while <laughs> the world was collapsing. So the travel industry, travel is usually the first thing that goes when there's a recession, right? People are like, okay, I'm not going to actually book my trip. I was very adamant though, that I wanted to get a job in travel. And I think there's two things that I've thought about in this, this respect. One, I started working very, very early. So I have always saved my money, <laughs> I've hoarded it. So I started working when I was 14 and I had started saving um, then, right? So I'd always given myself a little bit of a safety net with my own salaries that I've collected as I've been working. Um, so when I graduated, I had the ability to, I was trying to get jobs in travel. No one was hiring. So I took a part, I, I was meeting with every single travel company I could find and sort of working connections and um, really hustling, right? And um, I wouldn't drop the bone. People were like, just go be an insurance salesperson. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't necessarily like spark my soul. Um, so I just, I was, I, was, I was very stubborn. And I'm also a contrarian by nature. So as soon as I'm Someone says, this is a bad idea. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, so, so, so I got a job part-time, right? So I was working two days a week at like a marketing coordinator job at this uh, luxury tour operator. They do European tours. Um, and I was getting paid nothing, but it was just building up experience. So um, And that eventually leveraged into a full-time position. And then I grew within that company. But I think because things were so different. And I was, I was working, I had three jobs at one point. So I was working for my dad's company. I was waitressing as well. So it was very much, I know I want to be in travel. I need to make money. So I'm going to have these sort of part-time jobs to supplement it. And eventually I, I bet on myself. I was like, you know what? I'm going to work my butt off and I'm going to prove that I deserve a full-time position. And, and that, that is what happened. I, I crushed myself with work. I think I worked straight for two years, um, but it paid off. And I think because of that, I realized I can actually switch industries because I've been able to create something of nothing. And that gave me some confidence, actually. 
um, because I was able to, I bet on myself, it worked. And that's why I haven't been afraid to dive into the deep end when it comes to new industries. And I think in some ways I've sort of screwed myself a little bit because this like very intense motion of trying to rebuild is something that I've realized I love which is why I keep switching industries because I love to learn new industries. Um, I love the sort of hyper stimulation that comes with the education of learning the dynamics of all of these different industries that I've existed in. That's uh, fascinating. I think we talk to lots of people who I would say are contrarians in this uh, <laughs> podcast. And it's, it's clearly a very important kind of skill and, and, and to some extent confidence must come into that as well but the ability to be determined and not to take uh, no for an answer so and currently you're involved in a neuropsychiatry tech platform can you tell us something about the work of this company yes yes i'm really excited so my business abo performance um, it's a strategic and commercial advising company so i work with a bunch of different clients in cannabis and psychedelics this particular one, this company is called SAMA Therapeutics. They're based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and is run by um, a neuropsychiatrist scientist that is trained at Harvard, MIT. So they're really brilliant. And the thesis for this company is really focusing on more precise diagnostics when it comes to neuropsychiatry. And their mission really spoke to me because when you think about how we look at all of the different parts of our bodies, right? So for example, I've had open heart surgery a handful of times. So um, when they found that issue, they used a typical echocardiogram, right? At EKGs, they're actually looking at these organs to identify what's going wrong. Interestingly enough, we don't do that with our brain. Um, we, we really, it's very talk therapy focused, which is extremely helpful, but you're missing some things when you're actually discounting the blood flow to the, like the prefrontal cortex, for example. So SAMA Therapeutics is very focused on combining the actual imaging of the brain to better diagnose and actually from a preventative standpoint, be able to get ahead of some of these psychiatric disorders and have more precise diagnostics so that we are actually able to truly provide recommendations and treatment plans that are tied to the actual issue that's going on in your brain versus what's happening right now. And I'll use depression in the United States specifically. It's a very trial and error approach and it's very focused on talk therapy and you're giving people SSRIs without actually doing, and not across the board, but broadly, you're, you're prescribing SSRIs to someone where you actually haven't gone deeper to understand what's truly going on. And depression is a big umbrella, as I'm sure you're, you know, there's so many different coexisting comorbidities that go into depression. So it's important when you're giving somebody these drugs that you really know that you're treating the actual problem. So SAMA combines um, AI and machine learning, and they're really, it's a software as a medical device. So they're partnering with companies that have these brain scanning devices, and we're focusing specifically on psychedelics to start just because there's a lot of need for data with these drug trials that are happening. Um, but the idea is that you're actually scanning people's brains and then you're providing diagnostic um, criteria and support combined with talk therapy. So we're really supplementing 
the standard modalities for um, treatment of mental health issues, but we're creating this sort of clinical ability to really go deeper and see what's happening in the brain. Um, and I went through this actually in December, which is what drew me to it. I, um, I was recently, this year was diagnosed with ADHD. And I, as I said, I'm a contrarian. So going to talk therapy, I think if someone said, and as, as you probably know, ADHD is very, very overdiagnosed in the United States. I think it's very easy to get Adderall or Ritalin or any of these medications. And it's done, you can have a 15 minute consultation and then you just have a prescription that you walk away with. For me, I need to have the scientific layer. So I actually got my brain scanned in December, not with this company, this is prior to me working with uh, SAMA through a different clinic. And that's actually how I got my ADHD diagnosis because you could see the blood flow and the lack of it to my prefrontal cortex and putting it in this sort of uh, the view of this isn't because I'm a weak person. This isn't because I have lack of control. I actually saw the brain as an organ. And I saw that this is why there are these challenges that I may have with concentration or focus or the need for highly stimulating work. I saw it with a blood flow um, the lack of the blood flow, right? In the brain scan. And that really helps anchor in my head. This is an organ. And sometimes organs need some support. And it's like, sometimes it doesn't work. Like my heart didn't work, but I didn't take it personally when I had my heart diagnosis, because for some reason I looked at it as an organ and it was breaking. And we don't do that with our brains. We take it personally. And it feels like almost a failure or a weakness as as a human on this planet. And I think if you put the brain back into this organ framework and say, hey, if you have these tendencies, it's actually might be because of these various things that are going on in your brain. And we can actually precisely help you um, treat these issues. And it's not because you're a weak person or you're failing at X, Y, Z. Well, there's a lot there. Um, I, I've been trying to unpack, unpack that in my mind. Emma, first of all, I did hear you correct that you had open heart uh, surgery. I'm sure a lot of listeners would be yeah, worried about you for that, uh, let alone anything else. So, um, and, and, and secondly, I was thinking, certainly the, the, the brain is an organ, but it's a very complicated organ, isn't it? And it's not like, for example, diagnosing a whole load of illnesses through a drop of blood, which, as right. we know, is difficult enough in its own right. Um, so you can assure us that this is a totally safe and genuine procedure that you're talking about, is it? Yeah. So, and what we're doing is we're actually not diagnosing or anything like that. We're providing the technology for clinics to be able to better diagnose, right? So that they, it's, it's a supplement. It's not replacing talk therapy. It's literally, we are a software platform that works with these different medical devices that are actually scanning the brain. And then we're creating this database that can better um, support the diagnosis. So this procedure isn't something that we're actually even going through probably three to five years, we'll be going through the FDA path. But this is really to support clinics. And for example, our target and where we're looking to focus is with the treatment of like ketamine clinics in the United States. Ketamine is um, approved for treatment um, in some cases and an off-label ketamine is used for depression treatment. So the thing is though, is that with these treatment plans, what's happening is you're administering the ketamine, you have the talk therapy post-treatment, but you're not actually looking at what's happening pre-treatment 
versus post-treatment. And that data is very valuable to pushing forward these different drug trials as well. So it's providing additional layers of data. It's not replacing the current modalities. It's allowing for a deeper monitoring of what's actually happening and very, and not just drugs, right? So meditation. So when you take, when you have a mindfulness practice, when you have meditation, there are changes that happen in your brain that are extremely valuable. Being able to actually visually see that helps really anchor um, that practice in people's minds. I think deeper than it does currently, because I think there's this thing with the mind where we sort of it, it seems like it's this own, it's its own thing. But when you think about the brain, it's it's electrical impulses, it's blood flow, like it still is operating as an organ. It's very mysterious, but there are little things that you can actually point to and say, okay, if you have anger issues, it's because you're having these issues in this particular part of your brain. For me personally, when I saw my own brain scan, I was able to sort of connect the dots and say, oh, behavior is tied to some of this like blood flow and electrical impulses in my brain. And it's, it depersonalizes it in this interesting way where it didn't feel like my fault. Whereas before it sort of felt like my fault or like a lack of control. It's like what ADHD specifically, where it's like, why are these things a little bit harder? And then when you sit with a psychiatrist and go through the brain scans along with talk therapy, along with these assessments, then it sort of shows you, okay, like there's these things I need to work on, but there's an actual physical reason it's happening. And you might know that like, like logically it's obvious, but when you see it, it just changes the interaction in this interesting way. It's fascinating and, and very well described, Emma. Thanks a lot for that. Some of your own expertise has been gathered working in a very new area, uh, and it's only embryonic in the uh, UK. Uh, were cannabis and psychedelics something you've been interested in recreationally? So um, I would say I have the, the typical uh, use cases with cannabis and psychedelics in college, right? Like, uh, I, I, I drank, I partied, I did sort of that typical, um, path. So historically I had smoked cannabis in recreational settings in college, not, not, um, consistently. Um, but I would, I would partake here and there psychedelics. I had taken mushrooms in Amsterdam, <laughs> sort of the rite of passion passage. Um, and then I had taken mushrooms recreationally at music festivals and sort of like that typical experimental phase in college. Um, but to be honest with you um, and sort of uh, opening up a little bit, I have uh, had uh, addiction issues myself with alcohol and um, opioids and benzodiazepines, Xanax specifically. And so um, I had really been in sort of this addiction cycle in my mid-teens to early 20s. And so I actually got sober. I quit alcohol and pills when I was 22. Um, and um, I had never really even considered psychedelics or cannabis as a replacement. I'd never been that drawn to it because I was so focused on these sort of harder drugs. In my, when I started working, um, I was working a lot. And 
taking the alcohol, and I would say uh, the work, the timing of which it kind of, I replaced my substance issues with workaholism, <laughs> which is what expedited my career and why I was working so hard. Um, I can see that in retrospect, I didn't put it together at the time. Uh, I, I started to explore cannabis as more of a medicinal path in my like late 20s, actually, a little bit later, and it was more for sleep and stress management. Um, so I hadn't been really using cannabis recreationally until I started to get into these higher stress positions and was leading teams and just needed to actually have healthier sleep habits. That's when I started to see the benefit of cannabis from a medicinal standpoint. And um, my, my second heart, so I've had heart surgery twice. Um, the first time was in 2006. Uh, and I was prescribed opioids. That's actually how I developed my addiction. By the end of the summer, I was healed from surgery, but also had um, a pretty intense addiction to opioids. I hadn't even really realized it had happened, but it did. It's sort of the age old story in America right now with uh, painkillers. Um, and then my last surgery was in 2019. And I was very nervous about um, leaving the hospital. In the hospital, you obviously have the IV and they're giving you fentanyl and morphine, but leaving the hospital and having the actual pills, I was nervous about that because of what had happened and because I had been clean for so long. Um, so I actually did my own THC CBD at home pain regimen um, to avoid having to take the pills when I was home. Um, and it was incredible. So, uh, and I certainly am not a doctor. I am not recommending this to anyone. Um, but it was something that I, I chose to do and sort of took things into my own hands because I was so nervous about going back down the painkiller route, the traditional way. And, um, it was effective. Um, and I think that was sort of this aha moment where I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually a pretty valuable pain management tool but you're also avoiding when you're taking painkillers after surgery, you're taking stool softener, you're taking these other pills to sort of manage the side effects of the painkillers. So you wipe all of that away. And what ended up happening was my healing, um, my recovery ended up being much faster than the first time um, because I wasn't as medicated, right? So it was pr probably cut the, the sort of full to healing, um, full recovery down by a third. Um, so that was for me, this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually something that is um, a harm reducer for folks that may have addictive tendencies. Uh, is it as good of, is it knocking the pain out like an opioid? No, it's not. It's not the full wipeout that you're getting with Vicodin or Percocet or anything like that but it's manageable and it makes it um, more tenable. And um, again, without the risk of addiction. Psychedelics was actually something that I discovered from a medicinal standpoint over the course of the pandemic. What I, I travel a lot, um, I'm on the road a lot, I'm going to a lot of conferences. So when the pandemic hit, I was benched. And because of my historic addiction issues, when I'm slow and there's not a lot going on, I get nervous, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, like idle time isn't great, I would say. So I, I actually was a little bit nervous about having so much downtime and I explored microdosing, psilocybin as sort of a way to manage some of that anxiety throughout the pandemic. So I started microdosing psilocybin and that was another, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD at that time, 
but I noticed that my focus actually changed. Um, so there was these benefits that were happening with the microdosing that was just mind blowing. And then I would say when I had my first real journey that changed my life genuinely was um, January 1st, 2021. Uh, I had mushrooms. I had sort of, um, I have a supplier that I have in Brooklyn. It's all very clean. And so I had mushrooms and I decided to go on a journey because mentally as, as we all were, it was a very, it's, and still is right. Uh, very taxing mentally. Um, so I went on a journey, a solo journey. I'd never done it before. Um, and I had done a lot of reading and I'd been, uh, had a mindfulness practice. So I had prepared myself for it. And that was truly probably one of the most, um, life-changing moments I've ever had because I had this journey. It was, it was very spiritual, but it was healing. It felt like, like six months of psychotherapy in a four hour period. It wasn't an easy journey. I cried a lot. It was, it was, a, it wasn't, you know, you're seeing gnomes <laughs> dancing around. It wasn't that it was very internal. It was very reflective and, um, it wiped out my depression now for at least a few months. Right. So I actually now have a psilocybin practice. It's microdosing every third day. And then every six months I'll do a deeper journey just for sort of my own mental healing. But that's my history with cannabis and, um, and psychedelics, but it's really only been psilocybin. I haven't done any of the other molecules. Thank you. Well, you're very courageous. And I think it's another example of how determined you are to manage your own life rather than to be controlled by, uh, yeah, events, which is, uh, you know, you put that in a very powerful manner. Yeah. And, and while you're talking, it's reminding me, because although these things are, are, are new in a sense, um, I, I worked at a hospital in Oxford where back in the 60s, they did practice the use of uh, uh, LSD um, yeah. and other, other less adventurous things like insulin treatment. Yeah, um, yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, so, so what have been some of the challenges in rolling out the medicinal use of such substances as, as these? And, and do they vary from state to state? Yes, absolutely. They, they very much do vary from state to state. So cannabis is, is obviously sort of the, the trailblazer of, of getting this all together. So cannabis is um, legal it's federally illegal in the United States. Um, so it is still schedule one. And, and so there's different, there's three different schedules in the U S um, I'm not sure is it, if it's the same, is it the same in the UK? Do you have the same schedule class for drugs? We do. Yes. I'm not sure where cannabis comes. Is it? Yeah. Uh... So, yeah. So cannabis is schedule one and schedule one basically means no medicinal value, high risk. Right. So, and, and most of the psychedelic compounds outside of ketamine, in the, like the, those classic psychedelics fall in that schedule one category, which means highly problematic, um, no medicinal value, um, super dangerous, right? Which basically stalls any ability to do true drug trials, right? So the issue with, and why there's such push for descheduling is so that we actually can get more data behind these a lot of which is anecdotal, right? Um, less so now, even in the last few years, we've had incredible studies coming out of places like John Hopkins, but also University College London. There's amazing stuff happening in the UK as well in terms of the research that's being done, but it, it really cuts us off at the knees. We're unable to really back up 
the way that other pharma companies are able to back up their trials with all of this data and even the drug trials that are happening today with psychedelics and cannabis, there's small populations, right? So there's small um, trial populations, which also makes it really challenging. So cannabis though, to sort of start, it is state by state. Everything in the United States is state by state. So there's the federal legality of it. And then the states have the ability to sort of create their own policies. And that has been very challenging, good in some ways, but very challenging in terms of rolling this out and having any level of consistency across states too, right? So if you look at cannabis, cannabis is legal um, for medical use in 36 states. Um, for recreational use, it's 19 states. Um, so dependent, and it's the same with gun laws in the United States too, where like at the, the laws are just so varied state by state. Um, so cannabis is interesting because they will, so the medical side of it, you need to have a medical card, right? So if you're in a medical only state like Maryland, Maryland, you have to go and it, it's, it's kind of a, what, the way that I look at it is that there's medicinal value to cannabis, absolutely. But the medical structure, it's pretty easy to get a medical card. Like there's a lot of different businesses that you pay 50 bucks and they'll give you a medical card and you're good to go. Um, so it's kind of a loophole in a way, but it is, it, it has medicinal value. Um, the issue when I look at cannabis is that because of the way it's structured, if you're, so we'll use Colorado as an example. Colorado is legal across the board for cannabis, for recreational and medical use. Colorado, if I'm a Colorado dispensary, a retail location selling to consumers, I can only order my product from Colorado produced businesses. So it has to be full supply chain within the state. So you're only able to purchase from brands that have been produced seed to sale in the state. And then the brands can only buy from farms and cultivators that are in Colorado. So it limits the supply chain. There's no interstate commerce at all with cannabis. So it's all very much insular to the states, which is good in one case because now there's all this revenue going into the state, but it's not an efficient way to do business <laughs> um, when you think about it, right? So there's that, but then you also have inconsistency because then some states, for example, New Jersey, New Jersey doesn't allow for cannabis edibles. They have adult use recreational is legal in New Jersey, but you can't buy edibles in New Jersey because of their, their rules. So every state has different weird rules about various things based on the local politicians and what matters and what doesn't. And it makes it so that if I move from California to Maryland, my access to cannabis is totally different. And what I actually can buy in Maryland is very different than what I can actually access in California. So there's like no consistency whatsoever when you go across these different states. Um, and then with psychedelics, that's a totally different situation where psychedelics is decriminalized in some states um, uh, and, and some towns, right? So for example, um, in Massachusetts, Cambridge, the town of the city of Cambridge has decriminalized psilocybin, but Massachusetts as a whole has not. So then there's like all of these laws, like town by town, which is interesting. So um, with psychedelics, ketamine is the one like quote unquote, it's not the traditional classic psychedelic, but ketamine is um, FDA approved. It's schedule three. And it was approved in the seventies as um, 
an anesthetic, uh, you know, so it was used for anesthesia. And now it's being used off label in actual clinics versus treatment resistant depression. And that's happening legally. So ketamine has its own set of rules because of the FDA sort of structure and where it's scheduled. Psilocybin was um, now is allowed for medical use in Oregon. So that's kind of the buzzy thing that's happening in the industry right now. So psilocybin specifically in Oregon, they're planning on having clinics where you can actually go and get treatment in these sort of um, monitored situations. Uh, but then every other state has different rules. So it's, it's, it's messy and that's very American. <laughs> And it's a very like sort of unique problem um, and challenge that we're working through right now. But it makes it hard because you have to stay like every day I spend 90 minutes to two hours in the morning just catching up on news um, and like regulatory changes across all these different towns and states for both of the industries. And I suppose there are rules about carrying across state boundaries oh, and things like yes, that. Right? That is a no-no. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's definitely a no-no. Now, I would say um, that it's it's been deprioritized by law enforcement. So um, it's not something that you're necessarily going to potentially get thrown in prison for. But the issue is, to your point, is that like that's like a handshake deal. Like the law still says it's illegal. And we saw in Indiana, actually, I read this article this morning, a nurse is facing up to 10 years of prison for microdosing psilocybin. Um, so while the like there's this sort of, oh, you know what, we're not gonna really penalize people, you still can by the, the letter of the law. Um, so it's precarious in my opinion, and it allows for people to use the law to their advantage in probably not great ways, right? And that's very American as well. Thank you. Sorry, Naomi, I spoke over you. No, I was just thinking it sounded very, very complicated, but I also wondered whether it was inversely related, whether attitudes towards um, the use of, of um, cannabis and psychedelics was related to attitudes towards guns, whether you see the kind of like the inverse, if, if there's an inverse connection. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that it's all very politicized, right? So what we're seeing with cannabis specifically. And it's actually a very interesting point that you bring up because um, Fox News, um, uh, you guys are aware of Fox News. Um, so Fox News, and I'm not making a political statement here, but Fox News recently came out, Laura Ingram is a, is a newscaster, and there was a big shooting um, over the weekend in, uh, or the 4th of July weekend in Highland Park, Chicago, in Illinois, um, mass shooting as it goes in America. and. Um, they're trying to make that connection between, you know, cannabis use and violence, right? And it, it's 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 a totally off base um, attempt. It's there's no basis of reality in any of that. Uh, but what you see, to your point, Naomi, is that these issues, like the logic, is gone out the door. So if you, but like, seventy percent of Americans, regardless of party, support the legalization of cannabis. Like that is the majority of Americans, regardless of party, support the legalization. Um, there's less uh, education around psychedelics. So psychedelics is just, it, we're, we're further behind, right? It's still early and people still think, oh, like tune in, drop out, Timothy Leary, people going crazy in San Francisco. They have all that stigma tied to sort of the acid days of the 60s. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more foreign. 
But what you see is that cannabis is absolutely being used as a political tool. Now, what you are seeing with more data now is that the Republicans are coming over to cannabis because of the tax revenue that is being generated out of the states that have actually legalized it. We also see a decrease in crime, a decrease in overdoses. Like you actually, now we have years of data behind us, which is truly what both of these industries need, which is why a company like Sama Therapeutic is so valuable because the more data we have, the better we can make our case. Um, but to your point, the gun thing is absolutely a political tool and cannabis. And you, you usually see um, kind of a sort of a break in those lines. But the other piece of it is that in the United States, if you use cannabis because it's a federally um, illegal substance, you can't have a gun. Now, how much people are actually like monitoring that like is very low in my opinion, but that's also just the way that the law is structured. They, they conflict with one another because of the scheduled level of cannabis. And when you think about it, alcohol is widely available and you can drink alcohol day long and have tons of guns. And it's so, so it's just a lot of hypocrisy as it relates to the laws and it's, it's the logic is missing when it comes to implementing some of these. Yeah, it doesn't seem very reasoned, does it? In, in... It's, it's very much just fighting each other. It's very much, what is the other side? Uh, it's, it's all politics. It's, you know, it's gross. <laughs> but and, yeah. you, and you mentioned, Emma, that um, medicinally cannabis can be useful for pain relief. Does it have any other benefits? Yeah. So it does. Um, so it's, it's been approved. So there is actually, um, there is a drug out there that uses um, like compounds from cannabis that's actually approved um, and is at, on the drug market and it's for um, seizure prevention for epilepsy. So um, incredible use as it relates to prevent. And, and it's one of those things where um, like it's, it's one of the few things that actually stops it in its tracks. Um, I have a good friend of mine that has twins that have Rett syndrome and um, cannabis has been, cannabis and CBD have been one of the only things that she's been able to use for her daughters to help with the seizures on a daily basis. So there really is, and that, that's, that's actually on market. Like that's actually been approved and gone through the standard trials. Um, pain management is obviously a big deal, but there's, I like to think of cannabis as the Swiss army knife because there's so many compounds in the plant, CBG, CBN, the ones that we know about, like the ones that are most widely known about are CBD and THC. CBD is just this jack of all trades because it's anti-inflammatory, it's antioxidant. So it has all of these incredible different um, effects that it can have. Now, um, what most people know or are familiar with is how cannabis is used for cancer patients that are going through chemotherapy. It helps really bring down some of the side effects of chemo. It brings back appetite, um, but it helps with sleep, right? And so this is something that um, I've gone quite deep on where as it relates to sleep health, because um, I think a lot of people will have a couple of drinks before they go to, to bed to sort of wind down. But if you actually, and I think the fitness monitoring um, and the biohacking industries where you have the, the Apple watch, you can actually see the deep sleep and the REM. If you, if you take an edible or you smoke, um, smoking in general is never like, it's, it's not recommended just because smoke inhalation isn't, isn't great for your brain, but it, it's better than say drinking a couple of drinks before bed based on what actually happens to you when you're sleeping, right? So it is a sleep tool. Um, 
And when you look at it, it doesn't disrupt REM and deep sleep the way even having two drinks before you go to bed does, right? Um, so from a sleep health standpoint, it's a better tool than alcohol to sort of bring down um, sort of your stress and, and help you sort of wind down for bed. Um, but, but beyond that, um, it has a ton of different, and, and it's, there's a couple of different compounds that should be considered. We always look at like percentage of THC, but that's actually very base and you should be looking at the different terpenes. So terpenes is sort of the buzzword of cannabis and that like every plant has terpenes. So limonene, for example, which is sort of that lemony smell. Limonene has um, different properties where it like actual antidepressant properties and anti-inflammatory Prof, uh, properties. beta carophylline is another terpene. So if you look at that, that's why the legal market is so interesting because you can get these very specific strains that are for sleep or for anxiety or for depression or um, just for hunger if you have like issues with your appetite. So cannabis has a wide breadth of different potential properties that it can be used for. Um, but the most, the ones that people most identify with is anti-anxiety, it's the anti-seizure, and then it's also sort of like managing some of these issues as it relates to some of these medications um, for cancer treatment. But it also has, um, it's been shown for CBD and THC it's a really great um, harm reducer as it relates to like coming off of other drugs. Um, so alcohol, um, and now, now, and this is, this is the combat, right? People will say, well, you're just replacing a drug with a drug. Um, that is true, but that's what we're doing currently in the United States already with um, like opioids, right? And heroin, where we have um, these different clinics that you can go to, uh, to get, uh, basically, you know, you're getting actually like still an opioid. It's a harm reducer. So in my opinion, if you're going to replace a drug, then you might as well replace it with something that's better for you than the other drug. So it's a harm reducer. It does have like, it's not the physical addiction that you're going to get with some of these, but if you have an addictive personality, you're absolutely going to be prone to potentially being dependent on all sorts of different things. So I think that's something that's important as well as for every, like, it's not this panacea. Um, it's, and same with psychedelics. It's certainly not, it's not for everyone, but it can be an incredible tool that's more effective than others. If others aren't working. Are there any groups of people who shouldn't, shouldn't use cannabis? Yes. Um, so this is something that is known if you have, have, and this is true for psychedelics as well. Um, and this, this should be sort of a rule of thumb in general for anybody that's exploring these substances, particularly like now where it's not fully legal um, for psychedelics specifically, like always proceed with caution and go through like actual clinics that, and like use ketamine where it's actually like monitored and all of that. I definitely don't suggest just like messing around with drugs, particularly street drugs are extremely scary um, in terms of what they could be laced with. But um, for cannabis and for psychedelics, uh, for cannabis specifically, if you have a history of psychosis in your family um, and um, you have history of schizophrenia, especially, uh, I would avoid cannabis entirely, completely, because what it's and it's not that it causes schizophrenia. It's that if you are prone to schizophrenia in your family or psychosis in your family, there is the potential that the effects that it has on your CB1, CB2 receptors, that it can actually sort of um, open it up, 
right? So it can bring it to the forefront. Um, and that's something same with psychedelics, where if you have a history of sort of deep, deep psychosis and um, psychiatric issues, that is something that you would want to proceed with caution with any type of drug you want to put in your body that has any effects on your brain. Um, so that would be, those are, those are absolutely the ones that I would avoid. Um, and then if you have, like, if you do have a deep history of addiction in general, going in wide, eyes wide open and monitoring how you're actually interacting with the substance, I think is just responsible. Um, if you are using it as a replacement for something that you may be addicted to, like I did, um, with alcohol and, and opioids. In terms of psychedelics, what kind of substances are we talking about? And what are the, what are the benefits are those? Are they different benefits to psychedelics and cannabis? Yes. I, I look at them as very different. Um, I, I genuinely, I think there are medicinal, um, value points with cannabis. I think it's mostly a recreational drug. Um, it, in my opinion, a, a recreational substance. Um, I think it can be both. Psychedelics can be enjoyable and fun, but I do mostly look at it as a tool for, um, self-exploration, but healing as well. Um, so when we talk about psychedelics, um, we are talking about a handful of different substances, the classics, right? Which is LSD, um, AKA acid. Um, you've got, you've got psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms. Um, so those are sort of like the ones that everybody is most familiar with. Then you have ketamine, which we talked about, which is, um, in certain like levels of dosing, you actually do get the psychedelic experience. And when you combine it with talk therapy, it allows you to actually get, deeper into the psychotherapy and open up more. So it, it's not a replacement, it sort of expedites, right? It actually makes the process go faster and it opens people up. And, and you, this, like for you, Naomi, in, in sort of the, the work that you've done, it sort of allows people to like break through some of those walls that are so important to break through, but it gets you there faster. Um, so that's, that's kind of the beauty in it is that it just like, it, it expedites it. So then there's ketamine, um, then there's MDMA. Um, so ecstasy, right? MDMA, which is in phase three trials in the United States. So uh, ecstasy is being done particularly with this, this group MAPS. Um, they are a nonprofit organization. They've been around, I believe since the seventies, they've been around for a while run by Rick Doblin. They're doing phase three trials for treatment resistant depression in veterans. And they're doing that in Colorado. And the, we're, we think it'll probably be approved by the FDA, um, in 2023 with psilocybin, probably two to three years out from there. So then MDMA is another substance that's being used in these clinical settings. And again, this one is administered with a therapist. So it's like you take the MDMA and then there's a talk therapy session that's happening while you're under the influence. And because MDMA is this sort of heart opener, it allows these veterans to sort of face the trauma that they have faced and, but face it in this way that's not as painful when they're under the influence. So they're able to sort of look at what they've experienced and work through it without it triggering more trauma in that specific setting, which is really, really incredible. So that's MDMA, that's, that'll probably be one of the first molecules that's approved. And then there's a few others. And the one that I'm really, really excited about, so then there's ayahuasca, right? So DMT, ayahuasca, 
Um, that is like, that came from South America. There's a lot of ayahuasca retreats, but that's DMT really is, is sort of the core molecule that's being used in those ceremonies. And then the other one is iboga, ibogaine. It's a West African plant. And there's um, centers down in Mexico and Costa Rica. The thing that's interesting about iboga is that it is one, it's, I would say it's probably the one where um, I wouldn't you do a BOGA as a first pass for psychedelics because there are some risks. You have to be off antidepressants. There's a lot of different things that you need to do prior to taking a BOGA, but a BOGA is one of the most effective treatments for opioid addiction that is out there at this point. Um, and it's, it's truly incredible. I've met a lot of people that have actually been addicts. Um, and this obviously is near and dear to my heart because of my own experiences, but addicts that have been through rehab time and time again, and have gone down to South America as sort of just like a desperate attempt. And they've done two sessions of boga, never had a desire for opioids again. Um, so it's, um, <clears throat> how, how, how does, how does it help? What, what, what does it do that, that seems yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, so it's, it's what the thing that's interesting about psychedelics versus other drugs, right? The typical profile of drugs, SSRIs is that what psychedelics do is it increases neuroplasticity. It's actually creating new neural pathways in your brain. So when you look at addiction and you look at the cycle of addiction, it's loops, right? You get kind of caught in these loops and it's not just substances. We have behavioral addictions, right? We've got um, eating and TV and our phones and everything, right? So you get kind of caught in these loops and what these molecules do and across the board, they all like all of these like typical psychedelics they create new neural pathways. They actually increase neuroplasticity and they break some of these cycles. Like it literally stops it in its track. Now it's obviously not, again, not a panacea. It doesn't work for everybody, but the efficacy of these treatments versus the other standard treatments that are out there, um, even in these small populations are so beyond what we're seeing with these other treatments that we're actually providing on mass scale for the population. So Ibogaine um, is, is really like that one specifically is rewiring and sort of breaking these addiction patterns that you actually have in your brain. So Iboga is a very interesting one, but it's also, I would say, what, even within the psychedelic compound list is probably one of the ones that are sort of not on the fringe, but newer, right? Like we've got the LSD, MDMA and psilocybin are sort of like the top three that everyone's thinking about. But when you think about the, the plant kingdom that's out there, there's so many different treatments that have been used for thousands and thousands of years by these indigenous people. It's very interesting to think about because just, you know, I've specialized in working with people who've got a history of complex trauma that find it really difficult to trust Yes. in um in in therapists and so you could spend 12 months building a therapeutic relationship so you think about how something like mdma might enable trust to happen more quickly perhaps in order to to get into the kind of like the meat and body of the of the therapeutic work it's very very thought-provoking do you think the medicinal use of substances like these has the potential to influence how we see people who have a history of problematic drug use might it help reduce stigma? Yes, I do. Um, I do. I think it's a long road. Um, I think it's a long road. I, cause if you look at even cannabis, right? Like 
it's, and I have to, I'm in this bubble of cannabis. <laughs> so, and then I'm in this bubble of psychedelics. And then every now and then I leave this bubble and I have a conversation with somebody and I say that I work in psychedelics and they're like, what? <laughs> um, and I think the assumption is that it's just about doing drugs and like getting high. And that, that's not what drew me to these spaces at all. It was about my own addiction recovery, my own mental health um, sort of journey. And then also trauma, particularly as it relates to veterans, um, which is really what drew me into the psychedelic space because I have quite a few friends that are in active military. Um, so what I think is this, is that tomorrow, on Netflix, Michael Pollan is dropping his documentary called How to Change Your Mind. He wrote a book um, called How to Change Your Mind and it, it created waves. It brought a lot of new people into the psychedelics realm. This documentary dropping tomorrow on Netflix is going to expand, the Netflix effect is what we call it. It's going to expand people into this world where it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is different than what I thought. So I think it's gonna be slowly but surely but this is what I think. Um, and I'm speaking about America specifically in terms of just the general um, sentiment. There is a lot of momentum happening uh, as more details and more trials come to fruition and more data comes to fruition. So I think there's a confluence of things that is going to help smash this forward. This documentary, it sounds silly, but this documentary series dropping tomorrow is going to open people up that never even thought about psychedelics in this realm. Similar if you haven't seen it, Fantastic Fungi is an amazing documentary. Yeah. Oh, so yes. So like that, that, when that dropped, people were like, wait a minute, mushrooms, what's going on? So I do think the Michael Pollan documentary will make a big difference. I also think that MAPS, these phase three trials with veterans, when we have these reports and it gets approved by the FDA next year, that's going to change everything. Because if there's one thing that is bipartisan in the United States, it's veterans. Um, so that I think was very, it's, it's obviously near and dear to all of our hearts, but it's also a very smart strategic move by MAPS because we are losing 22 veterans every single day from suicide in the United States. That's almost a veteran an hour. So that's unacceptable. And that, that stat combined with the incredible work that MAPS is doing, plus all of these other trials that we're doing as it relates to veterans, when you have real data behind it, I think that people are going to start to shift and not just look at this as a party drug, which is what ecstasy kind of, you think of it as raves um, and you think about it in this clinical way. Getting the stigma to drop is going to be the hardest thing for the majority of people. But I think if you make it so that it's in these clinical settings and it's prescribed and it's coming from a doctor, folks that may have never even once thought about MDMA will look at it in this different aspect because it feels like everything else. And I think that's really critical. Similar to cannabis though, I think that the form factor really matters. So like people smoking weed at par like a barbecue, I don't know that that's going to be this like mass thing. I think cannabis beverages is going to be a thing where it's like you're drinking, but it's a different molecule than alcohol. And like, we're all partaking in the same form factor, but having different effects based on what our brains like 
can deal with, right? I can't deal with alcohol. My husband can't deal with THC. So like we, we have, he's got an alcohol beverage. I've got my THC beverage and we're having a great time together, but neither of us are having the negative effects because we've learned what our brains can manage. Um, so I think the stigma is going to be really challenging, but I do think this next year is going to be a massive, massive shift in like broad understanding of what these molecules can truly do. That's really interesting. I was really shocked to hear that 22 veterans kill themselves every day. I and mean, that's it's such a high, such a high point. figure. Yeah, absolutely. But I wondered if have any of these classes of drugs been used with people in contact with the criminal justice system or is are things more conservative there? Yeah. So um Timothy Leary actually, like one of the first <laughs> Timothy, one of the first studies that had been done was in the 1970s um, at Harvard, right, that Timothy Leary had sort of driven that, um, and it was a prison study um, where they had, I believe it was 33 prisoners, um, they received LSD, and um, at the time, at the time, and Timothy Leary was such a big figure, and there's so many different conflicting opinions about Timothy Leary, I think broadly, this the psychedelics industry is like, you did a little too much. <laughs> you kind of scared everyone a little too much. And we put ourselves back by like 40 plus years. Um, so that original, that was the original study that was done. Um, and there was like great, there was good feedback that came out of that early on. But then in the nineties maps, Rick Doblin revisited that study and sort of debunked it. Right. Which is not saying that like they just, they were looking at prison pop, they were uh, basically looking at recidivism in prisoners. And um, they claimed that it decreased uh, recidivism by 67% down to 25%. The issue with that was that they were looking at it at like the 10 month mark, not the 30 month mark. So they weren't, the, the, the sort of calculations and the data that they were collecting didn't make it that viable of a study. So that was sort of the original, and then it got debunked by MAPS in the 90s. And really the main takeaway is that we need to do more. Um, and we need to actually see how this affects folks that are coming out of the prison system, the prison industrial complex in America, right? And like how we actually get them reintegrated into society. There aren't any active studies that are being done on prisoners. And this is what I'll say. And this is, this is actually something that I think about quite often. Um, is that we are looking at veterans and like these drug trials are focusing on veterans and they're focusing on populations that will speak to the general population's heartstrings. So it is, there's a political angle because we need to push this forward. Studies aren't being done on the prison population because I'm not sure that it actually like resonates as much with the public. What I, what I think though, is that um, what we see with the PTSD with veterans, we see PTSD with, um, you know, first responders, police officers, et cetera. And that PTSD, that reintegration into society is a similar motion, right? It just is. Um, it's harder actually probably for prisoners because there's also this stigma of having been in prison versus somebody that's law enforcement or military coming back into society. That's hard enough as it is. Um, my, my hunch is that the benefits that the veterans get from busting through the PTSD and sort of reintegrating with themselves and sort of like accepting what they've been through and what they've done and being able to move on and being sort of at peace with yourself. All of that applies to somebody that has been traumatized in the prison system. And probably the need there is much higher too, in terms of just your own self worth and viewpoint 
Um, so it's definitely needed, but I see massive benefits once we actually are able to do more broad research. And that's why descheduling is so important because there's so many populations that I see today benefiting from this, but aren't because we don't have the funding really to be able to do broad studies. You can just imagine the spin on that in the press though, in the media, you imagine Fox News and um, prisoners receiving drugs, you know, getting yeah. to the street. There's also like, there's all these like little things about how like the CIA was doing like try like, so there's like, there's some weirdness about volunteering, right? Where, or like, are we, so there's like, there's all that dynamic where it's like, are prisoners actually opting in? And so it's complicated. Um, I think it's unbelievably fascinating. And I think that it would be an incredible tool for somebody. So I, I, I believe that we'll see these studies coming out once we get through some of the descheduling, um, but it's probably going to be a while based on how we prioritize our prison populations, which is unfortunate. Well, you're clearly very uh, enthusiastic. And as you put it, you're inside these uh, particular bubbles. Um, but, and, and we know from what you've been saying, as well as using our own eyes, how far these things are kind of politically uh, yeah. driven and politically obstructed so but nevertheless are you optimistic about some of these treatment approaches becoming mainstream i am i am um i very much am i think that um with psychedelics specifically there is just more and more attention being put um these like forbes l gq rolling stone you're starting to really see um, these sort of more mainstream publications really start to talk about uh, this and, and the media is what it is, but the public follows the media. So I'm seeing the way in which these are being spoken about so much more than even a year ago. Um, so like the publications that I was reading a year ago were all like the psychedelic publications and the psychedelic special journalists. And now it's mainstream journalists. You're also seeing this uh, migration from cannabis to psychedelics as, as cannabis becomes way more capitalistic, way more big company, a lot more consolidation. You're seeing a lot of these folks sort of transition over as well. Um, but I think there's also just this general fatigue in how dismal our mental health care system is. Um, and I think there is this recognition that like, the United States government, like we've been, like we've been plying our population with these pills, these opioids and hundreds of thousands of people have died because of it. So I think there's also this saying like, you know what, we need to, we need other options. We need other modalities to help get us better. Um, so I think there is also just a general fatigue and frustration against the medical system that we currently have access to in this country. Um, so I see momentum building. I think it's going to take a while, though. Um, but I do. I'm I'm very optimistic. I just wondered, do we have any, any reason to believe, though, that companies that are involved in um, producing these, these classes of, of drugs are going to behave with any more integrity than Big Pharma has done traditionally? <sighs> yes, uh, I think it's a great question. And I think capitalism this hyper-capitalism world that we work in, uh, let exist within, I think is more powerful than any of us, right? So yeah, I do, I, I do have concerns about that. Um, and I think the entire industry does as well. Right now, the big pharma companies 
aren't able to access and get into it because of the federal status of these molecules. But once they are able to, um, I think things change, right? Because it's all about like time to market. Um, it's all about, and, and here's the, this is sort of the darker side of it, which is SSRIs don't cure you. They help the symptom. Um, we've seen with these MDMA, MDMA trials, we've seen with psilocybin that you actually can, one, you don't need to take them regularly. Um, so you, it, it, it's actually like a healing modality because of how it's sort of breaking the sort of cycle and it's, it's creating these neural connections. Um, so big far, so how do you monetize it is a question, right? Like if, if you're giving like, and that's where you go into this darkness where you're like, well, isn't that what big pharma should be caring about anyway, which is healing people. That's not it. It's about, it's about profits. It's about repetitive customers. It's about maximizing revenue. Um, and that's the challenge with psychedelics in general is one, um, they actually help people get better, um, by sort of helping your brain function better but they're also expensive because they require, they require actual like monitoring. They require sitters. They require therapists on site to be with you for, for four hours in America. That is extremely expensive. An hour therapy session is extremely expensive. So, so that's a big question that we have, which is, this is a totally different type of healthcare. We're so used to just sending pills at people. This is like, this is two way where it's like the patient has to really, really commit to the work, take the molecule, but then you also need to have usually multiple sitters because you want to have somebody that's monitoring the monitor because this is a very vulnerable state that someone's in. So how do you scale this? How do you make this accessible to the broader population? And that's something that I think about often, which is right now it costs four to six grand to go on a retreat, to have access to these molecules, not including travel. So that's not accessible to the majority of human beings. So right now it's very, it's in my opinion, very privileged. Um, so how do you actually scale this? And like, if I'm like a big pharma company that only cares about profits, opioids are great because it's like, you give it to people, they need more. And not only do they need more and consistently, they have to keep upping the doses. This is not that. So that's the interesting thing is like, how do you actually, um, make this a business, but also actually help people. What's happening now is the patent wars of psychedelics. Um, so there's all of these novel compounds being created by these companies like Atai, um, where they're creating their own compounds that have the effects of psychedelics, but in some cases may be like less of a length, right? So it's not 15 hours of an LSD trip, it's an hour, <laughs> you know? That seems beneficial, but then they're also exploring what if we take the psychedelic part out of it and just like focus on the um, neural plasticity part of it? So there's all of this work being done. And I think a lot of companies are um, going the patent route, which is like, if we can patent these novel molecules, then we can sell it. But to your point, again, there's a scalability problem in terms of the implementation and how do you actually make this accessible? Um, I think it's unavoidable to get eaten up by the capitalist bubble though. I, I, uh, so I think the next three to five years is gonna be very fascinating. Right now it's very hopeful. Um, I'm remaining hopeful, but I also am remaining um, skeptical. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how that pans out, won't it? Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 
so we're coming to the end of time but I just want to ask you as, as we're finishing you you post a lot of really uplifting inspiring content on social media and indeed we met through a mutual friend who said he was a bit down on his luck and said you're exactly the sort of person he needed to reach out to in order to get back on track which seems exactly what's needed in a coach can you tell us about your business and the kind of coaching you specialize in yeah, yeah. So, um, so my my business is um, strategic advising um, for like early stage pre seed, like before they've raised money or like growth companies, and that's based on my past experience working for rapid growth startups. So, scaling um, early stage businesses is sort of my wheelhouse. Part of that has been also working closely with the leaders of these organizations, um, having worked across many different leaders. And having been a leader myself at these companies and led teams that have been really successful. So it kind of happened organically to start when I left companies, um, the, the CEO or the folks on the C-suite would ask me to stay on um, to just, or like for, as a part-time thing, she's like, do you, can we keep like, just like the leadership sanity checking sessions and we'll pay you sort of here and there for that. So that's how it started. And then it actually, I've, I've created a business around leadership coaching. Um, I am currently actually getting certified in, um, it's with the Neuro Leadership Institute. So it's a neuroscience-based leadership coaching certification. So um, because I love, I, there is so much science into like organizational health and leadership. So um, I'm currently in the process of getting like final certification on that. But my leadership coaching, my coaching in general, it's it's performance based, right? And it's it's not just about how do you make your team really perform well. It's also about being a good leader. Is about taking care of yourself as a human. So that like sleep health matters. So it's 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 sort of uh, I'm a certified cannabis uh, and CBD health coach as well. But um, it's really focused on like you as a leader, you as a person on this planet, who do you want to be? How do you want to put yourself out there? Take care of yourself first. It's kind of like the oxygen mask on an airplane, right? You need to make sure that you're taking care of yourself first and then working with your teams to motivate them in the best ways possible. So it's very much focused on optimization and it's not about broad mass change. It's about, you can make tiny little tweaks here and there and it has massive, massive implications. And just even the tone that you take with somebody or the questions that you ask them can actually trigger insight without you telling them. So it's very neuroscience-based leadership coaching and performance coaching. Sounds, sounds excellent. It sounds really interesting. Thank you very much for your time today, Emma. That's been a great conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Emma. It's a real uh, thrill meeting with you and hearing about all these kind of exciting developments.